It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now, speaking of good timing, you had had the luck of covering the Cubs when they have probably had three of their most colorful managers in modern day history. Obviously, Leo Lipta-Rosier's up there. But when you talk about being able to cover Dusty Baker... Uh, Lou Pinella and Joe Madden. I think you referred to it as a sports writer's dream. Yeah, I said you probably thought you died and gone to beat writer heaven <laughs> if you covered those three guys. And another guy who wasn't, you know, in that category, Jim Riggleman, also a gentleman, loved covering him, interviewed him for the book. So he's in this book. But my gosh, three guys with such big names and pedigree. First of all, you get Dusty Baker in 03. You know, Joe Cool from California, well-read music going on in the manager's office, all kinds of theories about everything. And then Lou Pinella, the old player, the old hitter with the Yankees coming in and, you know, trying to burnish his image and maybe get a Hall of Fame vote with if he can (laughs) take the Cubs to the World Series. Well, the guy that finally did it was Joe Madden. A lot like Dusty, I would say. Joe and Dusty, a lot alike. Both have um, a lot of varied interests outside of baseball, music, cars, speak on social issues, whatever it was. So I got to cover all three of those guys and sitting before and after games and just listening to them talk and tell stories is unbelievable. And um, it was, uh, you know, one of those things like every day you'd sit there and go, I'm listening to Joe Madden talk about, you know, some scout with the Angels when he was first coming up or Gene Mock telling him you do a good job here and everything. And Lou telling uh, stories about George Steinbrenner and, you know, his expression, <laughs> look here and, 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 and what am I going to do with all these left hand hitters and what am I going to do with all these right hand hitters and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, Dusty, you know, with all the criticism he took after the Bartman game and all that kind of stuff. So it was, there is so much wrapped up into those three guys that they're just interesting human beings, as well as interesting managers who saw a lot of good and some bad and took a lot of criticism, all three of them. Yeah. That, you know, and, and the thing about dusty for me is just how he went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows in two seasons, Bruce, he has them five outs away from the world series. And by the end of 2004, a lot of cup fans are ready to run him out of town. Yeah, it was one of the most um, uh, falls from grace that I have ever seen. The 03 season, so high. And then, you know, Dusty gets criticized for not taking Pryor out or not talking to Pryor in the Bartman game. Uh, His handling of Wooden Pryor and other pitchers. But the, the one thing about Dusty is that the players 
love him and loved him then. Kerry Wood, one of the pitchers that Dusty allegedly ruined, said he would go through a wall for Dusty Baker. And when Dusty would come to town, say as manager of the Reds, Kerry Wood would make a beeline over to Dusty and they would talk for 15 or 20 minutes. When Mark Pryor, another one of those pitchers that Dusty allegedly ruined, was trying to get back into the game after many injuries, Dusty was the manager of the Reds, Mark Pryor called him and said, Dusty, can you get me another shot, even if it's on a minor league deal? So, yeah, uh, it was uh, one of those things that should have turned out better. I wish it had turned out better. Dusty probably could have done more to help that. It was kind of the 4 season was really a miserable one to cover, even though the Cubs won one more game than they did. The previous year when they went to the playoffs, it was this us against them. It was battling the broadcasters, whatever it might have been, and it just ended up bad. And you know how they collapsed in that final week with the home run in Shea Stadium, and then they lost all those games to the Mets and the Reds, and things went downhill from there. But could have, should have, then I wish it would have turned out better for them. I, I still laugh because you you mentioned the Latroy Hawkins press conference, and I'm sitting, and it's still to this day I can remember him just like it was just completely unprompted. He starts going after everybody, and I'm like, what is this guy doing? And I, I got a couple guesses of who may have said that they could blow a game too, but that that just made me laugh out loud. Yeah, that was an early 04 because Joe Borowski was the closer, and he comes to spring training in 04 hurt. He, we wrote that he was hurt. He denied it and later told us we were right. So the 04 spring training got off to a really bad start that way. They, the whole prior is it his Achilles, it is his elbow. Well, they make Latroy the closer after they put uh, Joe Borowski on what they called the DL back then, the disabled list. And he out of, out of the clear blue, Latroy calls a press conference to say, one, I'm not going to talk, okay? And then two, I can do your job, but you can't do mine. So, and like you said, anytime he blew a save, it's like, well, we could have done that too. He left himself wide open. It was not the wisest of moves. The, the, I don't know if the Cubs had any inkling that he was going to do that. I think if they did, they would not have let him do that. But he just set himself up for whatever he got. And too bad because in a lot of ways, you know, Latroy, an interesting guy, lasted a long time in the big leagues from Gary, Indiana, right down the road. So, yeah, that was that was one of the most bizarre seasons and that moment was one of the most bizarre of that season. Now, I got to tell you, I remember, you know, they fired Dusty and at the end of the 2006 season and they're looking for a manager. I was a younger man back then and I was all into Joe Girardi. I wanted Joe Girardi to manage the Cubs. And I had a couple of friends that were in an older age bracket than I was that, that were all about Lou Pinella. And I felt Lou Pinella, I thought the game had passed him by, but when I read your book, it really seemed like Lou still had a stuff in the tank to contribute, to help players, still a very good baseball mind, and still had a lot of the passion. Well, he really did. And one of the things that uh, I, I point out in there, Lou had a real good eye for talent. He could have been a scout. He knew who could play and who couldn't. He knew who would play and who wouldn't. Uh, he took one look at the roster, gave it a little bit of time. They had Caesar as tourists at shortstop, and he was like, get him out of here. He's the one that put Ryan Terrio at shortstop in 07. And Terrio had two very good years. He said, son, you're playing shortstop. And, and behind the plate, he never did take to Michael Barrett. So they, they trade Barrett after his unfortunate incident with Mr. Zambrano in the dugout. And they end up getting Jason Kendall. And later that year, this kid named Giovanni Soto comes up. 
at the end of September of 07, or in September of 07, becomes Rookie of the Year in 2008. So Lou really did know talent. He also knew things like pitching. He would suggest a pitcher move from one side of the rubber to the other to get a better angle at the plate. And it's like, wow, this is pretty good for an old hitter. Well, I, I guess so because he faced a lot of pitchers. But, no, he had a lot of fire left in the tank. And I think you saw it in that June Saturday against the Braves when he got himself kicked out of the game and, and arguing. And the, and the Cubs went on a run from there. That's Mark Wagner, I think. And, and so – the 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 you know the final manager in your trio is Joe Madden, who I got to see him at Club 400 this summer. He is he is by far my favorite Cubs manager, and I go back, you know, not not horrible, but I you know I remember Glenn, you know Jim Fry and, and uh, you know Don Zimmer, and and you mentioned Riggs and and Treblehorn and all these guys. But to me, Joe Madden was just totally just unique in, in a very interesting spirit, and and I still to this day am blown away at how, you know, some Cub fans still believe that they won the World Series in spite of Joe instead of because of Joe. Yeah, and that's not at all true. Let me tell you, first of all, what he did. He changed the culture of the Cubs when he got there in 2015. He got them to believe they could win. In May of that year, I remember being in St. Louis and the Cubs weren't sure if they could beat the Cardinals. It took all summer but by the time the Cardinals came to Chicago in September of 15, they won and there was a little beanball war and, and Joe went after the Cardinals. And, and I was ready for it with my video camera when I was working with the paper. And Joe just went off about how they might start stuff, but we're going to finish it. And I don't know what book they're playing out of, but it was written 100 years ago. So he changed the culture there to what you saw happen in 16, where the Cubs were a dominant team. Now, so let's let's talk about that World Series where Joe gets so much criticism. One thing gets forgotten. They were down three games to one. They were left for dead. The Indians were going to win that World Series in five games. The beat writers had a little what I call a seance in Joe's office before every game where we'd go in and he'd fill us in on some things. It was just a little bit to treat the beat writers, give us a little bit extra. And Joe was the same guy in October when the Cubs were down three games to one as he was in March in spring training or April or June, whatever it might be. He was relaxed. He never panicked. And that, pan that lack of panic filtered down to the Cubs. He didn't panic and the players didn't panic either. And, and that's, to me, one of the reasons they were able to come back and win that World Series. Now, that said, you can certainly criticize, and I've done so, his decisions about the pitching in the last couple of games. The Chapman stuff, listen, I had other managers tell me, anytime you get a guy like that, you're going to ride him, and you think about the consequences later. The Cubs weren't going to re-sign Chapman, so it was like, throw him out there, and that's what Joe did. The Hendricks thing in Game 7, pulling him early, okay, yeah, you can argue with that, but on balance, what Joe did was, I, I think, set a tone, set the culture, and he never panicked. And that's a big reason the Cubs came back to win. You know, and I think people forget. Like I, I remember, you know, I'm I'm in a panic down three games to one. I'm 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 freaking out. I'm oh my god, is this happening to me all over again? And I'm sitting there, and what ends up happening is I'm seeing he's letting these guys go trick or treating with his kids. He's letting them play Mario Kart. Like it's like. He just let it just ride and relax. And I don't think any other Cub, you know, Cubs manager just kept the blood pressure, just like you said, steady as they go. And I've heard Joe talk before about, you know, he says, I don't regret anything about game seven. He says, I regret game six. I didn't have someone warming up when we took a bigger lead. And so it took him a while to get Strope in 
and when Chapman kind of came in and, and he, he gets upset about that. I think that to me more than anything, I think that, you know, they were, he was concerned in game seven about burning out Lester in the bullpen. And he was just like, okay, it didn't, you know, there was a bad ball four call and a lefty was coming up. So he brings him in and, you know, again, I think, what did he call it? Outcome bias, right? If, if, yes. if, if, if Lester gets that out, then, then they don't even argue about that. You know I mean? No one says anything to me. I always figured that the first cub that manager that led the Cubs to a world series would get a statue. And instead you got people still critical. I'll never get that as long as I live Bruce, but um, you know, as you know, I'm looking at part three of the book at the trades and the very first trade you bring up is one that a lot of cup fans know the history of Brock for Bruglio. And, and that is one that, you know, even if you didn't live, I know it and I didn't live in the 1960s. Why do you think that one just, just seems out of all of them to hit as hard as, and is it because it was a Cardinals trade? I mean, it was just so bizarre. No, I think uh, it was because they traded a guy who they didn't know what they had, and he went on to become a Hall of Famer, played in three World Series with the Cardinals, the hated Cardinals, and won two of them. If You, you have to look back at what was going on with the Cubs at that time. It was kind of total chaos. They didn't have a manager, if you can believe that. They had a system called the College of Coaches, and they even at one point had an athletic director like it was a college. So they would rotate coaches up and down through the Cubs system, and one guy would be the head coach. In 1964, the head coach was uh, Bob Kennedy when they traded him, and they had guys like Lou Klein and V.D. Himsel and all these other guys, Charlie Metro, who were the head coach. They weren't the manager. So you have a kid like Brock, young, impressionable kid. Do we want you to be a base dealer? Do we want you to be a home run hitter? He did have power. Hit a home run to center field on the polo grounds almost 500 feet away. That's in the book. That starts the chapter. Uh, do we, are you a left fielder? Are you a right fielder? Because of that crazy cockamamie system that they had college of coaches, I don't think Brock knew which end was up half the time. So in 63. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. They contended a little bit. They finished above 500 for the first time in forever. They thought they could win in 64, be a contender at least. They needed some starting pitching. They had guys like Dick Ellsworth and Larry Jackson and Bob Buell, some of whom were past their prime. So down in St. Louis, there was an 18-game winner named Ernie Brolio. Well, the, the Cubs thought if they get him, they could get over the hump with their pitching staff and win. So they traded Brock to the Cardinals for that. The trade did not go over well in St. Louis. They thought, who would ever trade Brolio for Brock? And I put in my book, well, who indeed? Uh, <laughs> the, the press in Chicago said, we'll do business with you anytime. Oh, you beautiful Redbirds. Thank you. Thank you. All that kind of stuff. Well, a couple of things happened. The manager in St. Louis, Johnny Keene, told Lou Brock, be yourself. We're going to give you the green light to run. You don't have to worry about any of this other stuff. We're going to bat you up high. Run. You have the green light to run. He never had that in Chicago. So the guy they get back in the trade, Ernie Brolio, has a bum elbow. 
that was in the days, you remember now this is 60 years ago, where teams weren't trading medical information all the time. That trade would never go down today because Grolio would, the Cubs would know beforehand that he was damaged goods because of the trading off of medical information. That wasn't routine in those days. Look, he only pitched a handful of games that year and a few more in 65 and was done, you know, a couple of years later. So the, your original question, why is that stuck in so many people's craw? Well, because it was avoidable, probably, had they had a better system of dealing with young players and had, uh, you know, Brock been fully, you know, cognizant of what his role was going to be. You know, what should I do? Okay, I'm a base stealer. I'm this, I'm that. Rather than every day, it's a new thing, what he's supposed to be. So I think it, it goes to all those things, trading away a potential Hall of Famer just because the organization was run so poorly in those days. And the thing about the College of Coaches that still gets me angry is they never gave Buck O'Neill a shot at coaching, which I, you know, you know, obviously we're in a different time now. But, you know, when you think about Buck O'Neill and the intelligence that he had and, and the managerial prowess that he had, shame that he didn't get to become the first African-American manager when he was right there. It was but, you know, you also talk about some of the positive trades. And when you think about it, you know, the Cubs should really be thanking Philadelphia because I think two of the biggest trades that went the Cubs way was for getting Fergie Jenkins, probably the greatest pitcher in Cubs history, and Ryan Sandberg, who has his statue coming out this season. So, you know, some good trades as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And we talk about those. The, the, the Fergie one was interesting because I mentioned a couple of the pitchers, Larry Jackson and Bob Buell, the Cubs sent to the Phillies in 66. And uh, they were over the hill pretty much. And they got this guy Jenkins, who was a bullpen guy at the time, and a center fielder named Adolfo Phillips, who would figure into Cubs lore a little bit, and a first baseman named John Hernstein, who didn't really play that much. But Fergie caught the eye of Leo DeRocher in 66, changed, Leo changed him from a reliever to a starter, and, and the rest, of course, is history. Uh, the Phillies made a big mistake with that, as they did with trading Ryan Sandberg in late 81 to the Cubs in the Manny Trio, Ivan DeHazer's trade. Uh, Larry Boa uh, uh, came over, and the, the joke is, and it's not really an accurate one, was that Sandberg was a throw-in. Well, the only reason people think he was a throw-in or thought that back then is because nobody had ever heard of him. He had played at Wrigley Field in September of 81 with the Phillies, got his first hit there, and Larry Boa made that happen. He called him the throw-in in spring training. Ah, they got me. You're just the throw-in. So uh, Sandberg, if you remember, had a rough start at the plate. He was a third baseman at the time. And, and the Cubs, one of the good things that manager Jim Fry did was that they moved him to second base and Fry, who was a, a better hitting coach than he was a manager, got Sandberg to pull the ball more and thus become a power hitter rather than a singles and doubles gap hitter. So a lot of things happened then. It was a uh, a big break for Ryan. And, and let's give Dallas Green some credit, too, because if you remember, Dallas Green managed the Phillies to the World Series title in 1980. So he knew the system. And he Dallas was a system guy, a farm system guy. He knew everything about the Philly system, and he was smart enough and had the foresight enough to pluck Sandberg out of that system and turn him into a Hall of Famer with the Cubs. I got to tell you, I got to tell you, Bruce, I, I think, you know, I know Brock for Brugley is a, a big one, but for me, firing Dallas Green was one of the biggest mistakes, in my opinion, in Cubs history. And I'm just sad that he's no longer with us to celebrate this 40th anniversary because 
He changed the entire culture. And I think of the guys that came out of the farm system and the guys that he traded for. And I just wonder what would have happened if he would have stuck around a few years longer. Yeah, that's one of the great mysteries and one of the great sad things in Cubs history. I think Dallas's line was that the people at the Tribune Company learned the lingo of baseball, as he put it, thought they knew everything and they didn't need him. They didn't like him because he was brash and he was big and he had a loud mouth and he fought with the neighbors and really set the stage for the Cubs getting lights in Wrigley Field, something he probably should get more credit for. But if yeah, you look at the system, guys like Greg Maddox and Palmero and, and Grace and Joe Girardi and Jamie Moyer, it's a, you know the great unknown what would have happened if Dallas had stayed around. You know, would he have beaten Theo Epstein to a World Series title? For the Cubs, you know, Theo is the guy who got it done. But would Dallas have got it done? We'll never know. But uh, between rebuilding the system, refurbishing Wrigley Field and getting lights in there, you know, were his legacy. And, yeah, you're right. It's too bad that he wasn't around to see it through. Now, you mentioned the lights and and that I know is a very passionate subject for you. And you have a chapter about it in the book about the the lights and the mythology behind the lights. If people aren't aware, um, you know, Wrigley actually had lights. What was it 1941? They yes. were all ready to install lights. Pearl Harbor happens and they donate them to the uh, war effort. And that's it. No lights from 41. And, and now we're in the 80s. And, and people are confused as to why the Cubs actually did get lights. And you, you talk about that in the book. Right. I mean, the Wrigley family, Philip K. Wrigley, after the war, really had no interest really in the day-to-day operations of the team or putting a winner on the field. And the idea of night baseball was something that he completely lost interest in. Well, the world changed. And with World Series games going to nighttime TV, primetime, you look what happened to the Cubs in 69 from playing all those day games. I got to believe that they were worn out from that. So it was time for lights at Wrigley Field. Well, they didn't get them until 1988, but they did make the playoffs in 1984. And this myth, and it's the biggest myth I'm convinced in the history of Chicago sports, that the Cubs somehow lost home field advantage in the 84 NLCS because Wrigley Field didn't have lights. It's simply not true. What would have happened is they would have lost home field advantage in the World Series and gotten the three-day games over the weekend instead of games one and two and six and seven at home. They would have played the middle three games of the World Series at home, but they did not lose home field to the Padres. Back then, it was an alternating 2-3 site, two at home, three on the road. And that year, the NL East was going to get two at home, and the NL West, being the Padres, will get three at home. That did not change, but for some reason, this myth has persisted that the Cubs were cheated out of a, a game, and, and and people like Dallas Green and Rick Sutcliffe and others around that team seem to have forgotten that, and they went on and, and promulgated this myth, but you know, looking through all the history of it, and in, in the book, I cite columnists like the estimable Tom Boswell, who wrote that, no, this is not going to happen. Things will progress in the National League as they are scheduled. The only change will come in the World Series. And in, in a way, it's a, I, I wish that would have taken place because the Cubs and Tigers would have, I think, been a, just a compelling World Series, you know, rematch of 45 and others and two old uh, charter franchises of their league, two great ballparks, Tiger Stadium and Wrigley Field. But the, the point is that never happened that way. 
and I correct people on that to this day. I see it online always when you hear about the Cubs in 84. It's like, oh, no, here it comes again. They're going <laughs> to say the Cubs lost the home field. They didn't. Read the chapter in the book. It's all detailed in there. And, um, you know, they, they got lights in 88, and everybody uh, lived happily ever after. Now, now, Bruce, I, I mean, the book – it just there's just so much in there and definitely pick it up. But I, I, I thought it was interesting that the forward was written by David Ross. We all know David Ross um, was let go at the be at the end of the season in a very shocking move. Um, what was your relationship like with David Ross and how shocked were you when he was let go? Yeah, my relationship, like all the other writers, I think was very good. And I think that's the reason and all credit to Jesse and and talking to David about writing the forward. Jesse got that done and all credit to him. But I remember after the 15th season, uh, we're leaving the ballpark. Remember, they got swept by the Mets and nobody, you know, people were disappointed, but it was like better things are coming. You just knew it. So uh, the next day we come in after they lost and uh, Theo does his postmortem and I'm walking to my car in the parking lot and I see a car come up and a guy roll down his window honking the horn and it's David Ross and he's waving at me and he goes, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for all the coverage. Thank you for the interviews. And I'm like, no, no. He goes, no, no, I mean it. Thank you. So David was really a joy to deal with as a player. You knew he was a leader. You knew his relationship with John Lester. And that's partly why they brought him here. But um, was I shocked that he got fired as manager? I, I suppose. But I learned in, in doing this all these years, you're never totally shocked because anything can happen. I guess the Cubs saw that they could pounce on a, an upgrade in a manager in, in Craig Council. We'll see if that comes true. So I was surprised, but I've, I've learned not to be totally shocked by these things. Well, Bruce, what I'm going to do right now, I'm dropping the link to your book in the chat. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it anywhere that you get books, even Barnes and Nobles, wherever. And I got to tell you, Bruce, it, it is truly an enjoyable read because you're not stuck in one specific, you know, the 69 or the it's, it's kind of all over the place. So it has a little something for everybody, you know, from, you know, Gabby Hartnett all the way to Jake Arietta. You guys cover a little bit of everything. And I think that's part of what makes it enjoyable is that, you know, a, a, you know, my teenager could read it. My dad could read it. I could read it. There's something for everybody. And it's just such a well-written book. Um, are you going to be doing any more book talks in the upcoming future? Well, I hope so. Uh, we did the Schomburg Library in December. I've been in talks with uh, in your hometown with uh, Bartlett and maybe getting something done in April. And I'll manage to try to schedule that when the Cubs are away so nobody has to miss a Cubs home game, especially you. And mm -hmm. uh, so maybe we'll do that in the, the spring and April and at the Bartlett uh, Public Library. But we'll see if others call. I'm always open to it, as I'm sure Jesse is. Bruce, let, it, let the listeners know where they can find you on the socials. Okay, I'm on Facebook, just my name, Bruce Miles, and on Twitter, uh, Bruce Miles 2112. I'm a Rush fan, so Rush fans will know that one. And um, one of the things that I'm most proud of as a, a beat writer was that I always engaged with the readers and the fans. I wrote for them. I didn't write for my editors. I didn't write to impress other writers. I wrote for the reader, the Cubs fan, to keep them informed, entertained, all that kind of stuff. So if you engage me on social media, good chance I'll, I'll uh, write you back. Appreciate you joining us, Bruce. The book is called The Franchise Chicago Cubs, A Curated History of the Northsiders. I would have played some Rush for you, but I would have gotten a YouTube violation, so I apologize. But, Bruce, thanks so much for jumping on and hopefully talk to you again in the future. Okay, Crawley, I had a blast.
You are listening to episode two, season three of the Fly the W670 podcast. Bruce Miles talking the franchise, the Chicago Cubs. Crowley, great job with that one. Hope uh, something happens soon so we can have a, maybe an emergency podcast. Absolutely. We need an emergency podcast. The countdown to CubsCon begins. And don't forget to get that book by Bruce Miles, the franchise. It, it is really a fun read. And I think Cub fans all over will enjoy it. Well, that's a wrap. Don't forget to listen, download, review, and subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. Follow us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram. Of course, we're on Twitter. And flythew670 at gmail.com is where you can email Crowley and I. And you can watch us, that's right, on the YouTube by subscribing to the 670 The Score YouTube channel. CubsCon, here we come. Go Cubs!